Live from the mist and shrouded mountaintop fortress that is X and Y Communications Headquarters, you're listening to the world famous Mountaintop Podcast. And now, here's your host, Scott McKay. Oh yeah, how's it going gentlemen? Welcome to yet another episode of the Mountaintop Podcast. My name is Scott McKay, at Scott McKay on both Twitter and Clubhouse. You can find me on Instagram at Real Scott McKay. Search YouTube for Scott McKay to find all our videos. The URL is www.mountaintoppodcast.com. And I invite you to join us on our Facebook group for men of character, which is the Mountaintop Summit. Gentlemen, today is going to be a fun show. I have two guests on today, which you guys already know is unusual, but in this case, it is well-founded and warranted because I have none other than Steve Murphy and Javier Pena on this show. Now, listen, if you guys are fans at all of the Netflix show Narcos, you already know who these two guys are. They're the two men who are widely credited and indeed rightly so, with having brought down Pablo Escobar, who, of course, was the head of the Medellin cartel back in the 80s and early 90s, and at one time thought to be about the seventh richest man in the world based on his cocaine, uh, I don't know if you want to call it earnings as much as stealings uh, or griftings, but uh, these guys are joining us today, and I have a great topic to discuss with them that they both told me they've never been asked about before. So without anything further, let's welcome to the show Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. Hey, guys. Hey, Scott. How are you? Scott, Doing great. thank you for inviting us. Yeah, man. Listen, it's my pleasure. And uh, as I told you, I've been a huge fan of the Narcos show since it first started on Netflix, my wife and I both. Uh, the show has actually changed my life, which we'll get to later. Uh, but what I would love to do is, first of all, level set these guys on who you are and how you got the notoriety for having taken down Pablo Escobar. I'm going to let you guys just riff on that story just a little bit to help give these guys some foundation. Well, I, Javier, if you don't mind, I'll go first here. Go ahead. Um, who we really are, Scott, we're two small town country boys that got to work a really big drug case that got blown out of proportion by a TV show on Netflix called Narcos. That's who we are. <laughs> you know, we're, uh, we're, we're career law enforcement professionals. We both have a right at 38 years each in law enforcement. We don't know how to do a lot of other things. So that's us. Yeah. Well, one thing I know, having talked to both of you guys before we hit record on this, and Steve, you and I talked in advance as well, is both you guys have, first of all, it just oozes from every pore. You guys have confidence in your purpose in life. Uh, you're over yourselves. Like so many other people who have done uh, notable or exceptional things in life, which, you know, whether you guys want to hear that or not is absolutely true. I mean, you guys got a speaking tour to prove it in a book that's, you know, been uh, consumed by thousands of readers and the show that was made about your exploits, which, of course, you know, in all fairness, is the story of Pablo Escobar. He has a little bit of a part to play in it. But <laughs> What I love about guys like you, men of character, men of purpose, is very, very often you do have that mental toughness, and you also have what goes along with it, which is this ability to say, yeah, I have nobody to impress. I I've done what I was supposed to do. It was part of my duty, especially guys in the military, guys in law enforcement, uh, noticed, uh, uh, don't need to impress you. They don't need to brag about what they've done. It kind of stands alone and speaks for itself. So I know I'm putting you guys on the spot a little bit, but I would say that um, that describes you. And I guess the question I would ask along with that is, were you guys both always like that? Or is that something that's come with, uh, you know, having smelled the roses over the years and, and built some gratitude up, et cetera, et cetera. What do you guys say about that? Well, this is, yeah, and this is Javier Scott. I'll, uh, b basically, you know what? We, uh, when I, I did not know I was going to work on the Pablo Escobar case. You know, I came on with DEA in my, uh, life trajectory as, as opposed to Steve is very different. You know, and I'll let Steve here in a little bit, but with me, I did not know I wanted to be a cop. I did not know uh, what, you know, when I hired on in DEA, I did not know what DEA was. I was, uh, you know, I grew up in South Texas, a small town, uh, Hebronville, Texas. Some of y'all from San Antonio know where it is. It's known for a lot of deer country down there. Then uh, Laredo Sheriff's Office. I just wanted to get out of the area. And uh, that's why I applied for DEA, not knowing what DEA was. 
ended up in Colombia, and I was assigned the Pablo Escobar case. I did not ask for it. They said, uh, Javier, you're going to be working uh, Pablo Escobar. So everything with me has all been uh, like, you know, not knowing, but just getting assigned. And we were regular, you know, police officers. I was with the sheriff's office in Laredo, then started off in Austin. And uh, when I went to Colombia, obviously, you know, we learned right away who Pablo Escobar was. But it's it's something that you know, like you mentioned, the military guys, you know, we're, we're trained, we're ethics, uh, ethics is big in our job, uh, you know, and uh, there's always an example at a search warrant, there's a $100,000 and, uh, well, boss, let's just take 20 bucks so we can get a pizza. <laughs> Once you take that 20 bucks, you're done. You're, you know what I'm saying? So you can never cross that line. And I think uh, y'all, know what i'm talking about there's been a lot of opportunities we could have of course you know but it's not i don't know it's not in our character it's not in my character it's not in steve's character so that that always makes a big difference now in your book you guys have lots of pictures in the middle every one of them intensely fascinating and indeed you're posing next to stacks of money in several of them and what you're saying javier is as soon as you take one twenty dollar bill off that stack you're a corrupt cop. You're done. You're done. Yeah. And, and like I said, and I always go back. Our ethics, our our training, and and your upbringing. You know, we're we're good guys. We're not. You know, and uh, there's a line, and uh, I think it's even in the book where we say, you know what, we broke policies, we broke rules, but we never broke the law. Wow, that's really interesting because that is indeed the topic we want to get to on this show. But I don't want to leave Steve out of the mix here. Steve, you're a country boy yourself from uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Am I correct? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly where that is, as I know where Hebronville is, too, by the way, Javier. Yeah. yeah. Murfreesboro, when we lived there, was a small town. Now it's it's a suburb of Nashville. But uh, going in, you know, as I'm going into high school, my mom and dad were from West Virginia. So we moved to southern West Virginia, a little town called Princeton, which I think population was about 9,000. So, uh, I'm, you know, I, I just like to tell everybody I'm a cross between a redneck and a hillbilly. I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> and now here you guys are on a speaking tour, having taken down the most notorious criminal of all time. Yeah. And and you guys are saying this was basically accidental. You signed up for duty. You signed up to be a man of honor and to serve your country and to get rid of the bad guys. And indeed, uh, Steve, you've been in awe of law enforcement your entire life. Even as a kid, you knew that's what you wanted to be when you grew up, right? Right. It's, you know, my dad was a minister growing up, a Southern Baptist minister. So it was uh, a pretty strict household. Of course, you know, being a preacher, we call it a PK, a preacher's kid. Sure. I had my first run in with the cops. I think I was probably 10 or 11 years old. <laughs> and it wasn't a good experience. You know, we were trying to, my buddies and I were camping out in summertime in Murfreesboro and uh, we needed some money to go, you know, buy a soda or some peanut butter crackers or so we were going to break into one of the guy's houses. But somebody saw us, called the cops. We were so scared. We didn't even run. We just froze like a deer in the headlights. Uh, the two cops came over and, and after they found out what we were doing, they said, all right, boys, uh, you get the choice here. We can either put you in jail for the rest of your lives or we can take you home to your parents. You pick. <laughs> we all we all looked at each other and said, put us in jail. <laughs> Because <laughs> I knew what was going to happen when I got home. <laughs> Man, that's some high quality law enforcement there. <laughs> but you know, I think it. Uh, I think that common sense. You know, you didn't realize it at the time, but as you got older, you realized that the common sense that those two police officers displayed back then uh, that went a long way with me. And and uh, that's. I mean, since then, I've always wanted to be a cop. So I, wow. I, I was fortunate enough, like the saying says, find a job you like. You'll never work a day in your life. Javier and I find those jobs. You know, we feel like that today, to this day. Wow. Isn't that something else? You know, I was leafing through your book, which is an amazing read. I mean, it's just high energy. You're going to be exhausted by the time you put that book down, even if you only read a few chapters of it. And it alternates between your narrative, Steve, and yours, Javier. And, uh, of course, as we just mentioned, Steve, your first take in the entire book is how you were a kid and, and wanted to be in law enforcement your entire life. But Javier, yours is a little different. Yours is a white knuckle account that begins with the realization that Pablo Escobar himself knows where you live, where you are, and he's coming after you. And I'm like, wow, that's a hell of a way to open the book. So, man, it just seems like 
you just had to have an iron constitution to be able to even work in that environment because there was danger around every corner, literally, right? Yes, and uh, you know I'll never forget that call. And yeah, and you're right. Uh, no one's ever asked that, but that's how the book starts uh, with me. It's uh, getting a phone call in my apartment in Bogota, where my boss is. Javier, don't panic. Uh, just uh, grab your gun and get out of your apartment and come to the embassy. And you know, and all he said was, "Just there's some people coming uh, to get you, so get out of there." So, oh shit! You know, that's the oh shit factor. What the hell do I do now? And I always remember getting it. We had the old uh, Broncos, the four by four, the big Broncos. I got in and grabbed my gun and got the hell out of there. Was watching out. Of course, I was scared. I'm nervous. I'm like, what? Do I, what did I get into? This is my, like I said, the first month and and. Uh, uh, in Bogota and uh, basically after I get to the embassy you know uh, the marine guards are waiting for me it's like a movie they open up the gate I, I come rushing in and basically my boss is there and it was a it was a telephone intercept where Escobar's uh, uh, sicarios were coming after me so yeah, this is uh, my first experience with uh, Mr. Pablo Escobar, and uh, I'll never forget that. And you know what, Scott? Usually, if that happens nowadays, they would have pulled me out of the country right away. But uh, they decided, hey, let me stay there. And I, I didn't want I want to leave. All they did was move me to another apartment. But you know what? I'm I'm glad that you know they did not pull me out. Wow! And uh, of course, you're still standing here talking to me, so. Right. Ended up well with the end. Here. Yeah. Right. Um, listen, you know, how true to life is the show, Narcos? Hmm. <laughs> well, um, we learned a lot about uh, the term literary licensing uh, in making mar- Narcos because we told them all the stories we can remember. Uh, probably the most accurate thing in the whole Narcos series is the chronology, the timeline. Um, they added a lot of things that, uh, you know, they told us right up front and it's in your contract. So it's no surprise, but, uh, Javier says it best when, you know, they would, after they had write an episode, they'd email it to us and we'd read through it and try to pick out things, uh, inaccuracies or maybe things that could make the series look a little more authentic. Well, we got that first one I'm reading through and it's like, this crap didn't happen. <laughs> You know, they're showing uh, when my wife and I first got to Colombia that the Sicarios, the Colombian assassins, had broken into our apartment and sacrificed our cat on our front door. Now, we did have a cat named Puff, and Puff did die in Colombia, but he was old. He had a heart attack. He was not sacrificed on our front door. You know, uh, it shows that I was kidnapped. I was never kidnapped. It shows that Javier was uh, passing classified information to the outlaw group Los Pepes. That's not true. I mean, you know, Javier would be the first to tell you if that was true, he'd be getting out of prison about now. So what we have estimated is about a third of what you see in Narcos is true. The second third, well, those events happen, but they've been changed. They've been uh, dramatized. The circumstances have been uh, altered. And then that last third, well, that's just straight out make-believe Hollywood. But, you know, what we like to point out, the one thing that they show in Narcos that is true is Javier really did have all those girlfriends. He was kind of a man slut down there. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what, Scott, when, I, when people ask me about that, and when we do our shows, because we, we do a lot of presentations uh, where we actually tell the true story of Pablo Escobar, and we open it up to questions. <laughs> the first question that people want to know is, Sir, did you have all those affairs with all those women? <laughs> so that is kind of funny. You know, and my response is, you know what? I wish that was true. I wish that would have happened. <laughs> hey, behind every story is some element of truth, though. Of course, of course. Okay. Hey, I was I, I was single, and yes, I was dating a lot of different girls, but not not communists, not informants, you know. So anyway, so that was it. And let me just expound a little bit because, you know, I, I just gave my partner a hard time here. He was not dating communists or hookers or informants, but every other female in Colombia was fair game. <laughs> well, listen, you know, a lot of these guys have a very deep fascination with Colombian women. And for great reason, a lot of guys go down there to find a wife. Uh, Javier, I've got to ask you, man, what are your tips for these guys who uh, want to uh, not only be better with women, but especially Colombian women? Just have it. <laughs> 
you know what? They're, they're and Colombians are great people, and I'm talking about you know guys, girls. Uh, they're very warm people. They'll help you out. They will do whatever they can. It's a very uh, uh, it's it's a great country. We love it. You know, we encourage tourism to go down there. It, it's safe now, and uh, you know. The only thing is, like I said, it's uh, back then it was kind of dangerous. In fact, when we were there, it was considered a no uh, no kid post. Basically, uh, families could not bring their children to Colombia because it was that dangerous. But now, uh, tourism is great. It's like I said, it's a great country and uh, great people. We uh, we love it down there. Yeah, he conveniently sidestepped that one, Steve. I noticed. I, I did. I yeah. did. <laughs> You know what? But you're right. Colombian women are beautiful. And, and uh, I say that with the utmost respect because my both of my daughters are Colombian. Yes. You actually uh, adopted a Colombian daughter, didn't you? Uh, two little girls down there. Two. They were supposed okay. to show the second adoption at the end of season two of Narcos. But, you know, for whatever reason, Hollywood decided to cut that out. I guess they didn't think that was important. It was important to us. Yeah, I can only imagine so, for sure. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful, you know, uh, that you would quite literally take part of Columbia home with you. you well, know? it was, you know, good Lord blessed us. I have uh, two sons from my first marriage that yeah. are, are quite a bit older. Uh, they've accepted the, their two stepsisters as sisters and, you know, they're just as close as, uh, as biological siblings can be. So it was, it's pretty cool the way the whole thing turned out. Yeah. And Javier, I want to acknowledge also, you were talking about the nation of Columbia. My wife and I were fortunate enough to visit there. And it is just gorgeous. And Medellin, the weather is fantastic. And the food is great. And the people are wonderful. You know, obviously, this is your story, not mine. So I'm going to keep this really brief. But uh, We (laughs) actually had a chance to go to what was formerly known as the most dangerous neighborhood in the world with our friends we were hanging out with there. And now it has what's called the Metro Cable, which is basically a cable car system leading up to it. And the genius of having built that Metro Cable system was it made it so accessible to everybody else that it couldn't be as dangerous anymore post Pablo Escobar. But that's where he apparently went to recruit all of his sicarios and so forth. And so, uh, yeah, that was yes. interesting. Just hang out there going, ah, oh, OK, this is the most dangerous neighborhood in the world. <laughs> you know, we feel perfectly OK nowadays. Yeah. And you are correct. And, and you know what? Let me just start with the city of Medellin. They call it the... Ciudad de Eterna Primavera. It's it's a springtime all over the year. The temperature is great, and you saw the mountains. You know, you saw the like said the countryside, and it's also it's the flower capital of the world. A lot of people forget that they have their uh, parades every year, a festival. Feria de las Flores, where it's it's just uh, uh, the, all the flowers. It, most of the flowers that come to the U.S. come from uh, from Colombia, and Medellin is a big, big producer of uh, flowers. Well, you know, they also used to, you know, hide a lot of the cocaine in the, in the flower uh, shipments also. But and going back to the neighborhood where we were stationed was called the Bloque de Busqueda, the search of Pablo Escobar, but it was at a police base called the Carlos Holguin base. And it's right across that dangerous neighborhood. So at nighttime, you could hear the bombs uh, going off. And uh, But the neighborhood it was set in. This, uh, our, our search block it was just a little, real pretty neighborhood. Everybody started knowing each other. We used to have some beers. There was a little bar right across the base, right? You know, we'd come over and get a burger and a beer. Uh, it, it was just a unique neighborhood, hardworking people. But then again, you know, some of the uh, roughest, most violent sicarios came out of that neighborhood. And, and you are correct that Pablo Escobar used to go and recruit them. And he always, like you said, there was a, a good little story, and it was called. Uh, he said, "All right, I'm I'm having a meeting at La Terraza because we were intercepting Pablo Escobar. La Terraza was the terrace. We did not know what the terrace was. You know what the terrace was? It was an old one, a very poor Catholic church that had a terrace around it. So Pablo Escobar used to go there, and there'd be two, three hundred of these young sicarios, but." You know, that's where he would recruit them. Then they, they would train them to be stone cold killers. And most of this, uh, uh, sicarios were their religions was for Pablo Escobar. Like they used to, you know, one of them told me, he says, I'm going to die and I'm going to kill for Pablo Escobar. So that's that, that love relationship Escobar had with his sicarios. 
Yeah, and that's recounted a bit on the show for sure. And that's and it's a fact. I mean, and if you look at Escobar Sicarios, they were all fifteen to about twenty three, twenty four year old, and uh, just brainwashed by Pablo Escobar. Isn't that something? You know, the whole country seems to have been. I mean, one time Pablo Escobar was running for president, and even as he was just slaughtering law enforcement and even bringing down civilian airliners in an attempt to try to catch one guy, by the way, the country still a certain faction of the country. He was he was beloved amongst those people, seen as sort of a rescuer, as a deliverer. He was that. that well, that shows you how skewed or how how much terror he calls within his own country because people are afraid of him, you know, and uh, it's funny because people say, well, you know, given his, uh, his business acumen, he could have run any legal business and been successful. Well, that's just simply not true because his business plan was this, Scott, if he told you to do something and you refused, he killed you, he killed your wife and he killed your children, he even killed your dog. You know, that, that sends a very strong message, doesn't it? But it's certainly not a way you run a legal business. Yes. Right. But, Yet, here we are, one year it's reported he did better than General Motors <laughs> in terms <laughs> he of He did. You know, God, he offered to pay crazy. off the national debt of Columbia twice. Yes, right. $10 billion, right, was one yep. of the numbers I heard. Yep. Fantastic. I think that's right. It's just crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, I have to ask this question before we get into the meat and potatoes of this uh, particular episode. A lot of times guys come back from very traumatic experiences with a lot of blood and a lot of death and a lot of fear. With PTSD, have you guys struggled with that, or how can you guys seem to be so easygoing and tell this story so glibly nowadays? I mean, it must have been just very, very troubling often on the ground when you were there. Well, it, it, I'll go first, Scott. Yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of our friends get killed. Uh, we saw obviously the the civilian population. We and you, you briefly mentioned Scott, the uh, commercial airline, Avianca airline, where. What I think was 107 people were killed on board a commercial airline. Pablo Escobar planted that, that that bomb there, and uh, you know, I mean, we could go on and on. And I think you hinted on that, you know, that Pablo Escobar had that Robin Hood persona about him. Pablo Escobar, I'm going to be very clear, was no Robin Hood. Uh, so there, there was a lot of stress. There was a lot of times that Steve and I, we would talk. This is, man, let's just let him surrender. We get the hell out of here. But then, like I said, you saw your your friends get killed. It just, it, it would revive. It would just say, we can't let, we cannot surrender. Like I said, we wanted to. We were scared every day. But it was just that human uh, touch, you know, that human toll that uh, that Escobar could do, you know, from one from one side of the coin, he's uh, building churches, helping out the poor, and you turn that coin around and he's killing families, uh, taking down airlines, buildings, uh, kill the next president of Colombia. So uh, it, it was hard, obviously, you know. I mean, I think about it. I, I think about the friends that, that were that were killed. Uh, one in particular, because we, we pretty much sent him out uh Anyway, uh, but it, 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 it gets to you, but you know, you go on, you just cannot, uh, you know, uh, give up and, uh, you know, it's just, you just gotta get back out there. Yeah. And Javier, you said earlier in the show, well, you alluded to it somewhat that in order to catch a guy who was not playing by the rules, uh, you indeed had to break a few eggs to make an omelet. You know, you had to bend the rules, if not flat out break the law. And one of the exact quotes from, you know, the character who plays you on the show is sometimes you got to do bad things to catch bad people. And another narrative from the show basically relates how you had to throw out the rule book to beat the bad guys because the bad guys don't play by the rules. So to beat them, you can't be constrained by those rules either, or else they'll steamroll you since it's an uneven playing field. <laughs> Talk about that dynamic a little. Yeah, that dynamic. And like you said, that's why I said we never broke the law. Did we break rules, policies? Of course. I mean, you know, first of all, what are the basic rules? You know, because we're there as guests helping out the Colombian National Police. We just did not show up. And one of the rules was we could not leave the base. 
well, how are you going to do your job if you can't leave the base, if you know what I'm talking about? And then, you know, meeting uh, meeting informants, uh, wow, that was also a very risky business. And we used to have to go out of the base to meet informants, you know, because we started a $5 million reward on Pablo Escobar. So, it, and we were dealing, I mean, obviously, you know, and even in any law enforcement, when you're dealing with informants, there's some, wow, there are some bad ones out there who, who are, you know, they're trying to work off a of beef. They've uh, done a lot of bad things, but they want to try to uh, lower their sentences. So you got to deal with those people. But you always remember there's a line. There's a line you you don't cross. Uh, but by us going on operations, that was the first line that we crossed. You know, we went out on operations pretty much every day. Uh, and I think we were, you know, warned by our embassy, uh, uh, you know, by the ambassador's people. If they caught us out there, they were going to kick us out. But it's, anyway, there's a lot of, uh, like I said, when you're talking with uh, criminals, you know, informants, there's a lot of bad people out there, but you gotta, how else do you get that information? You know, but again, it, the show shows a lot, especially my character that, you know, I was a dirty agent and, uh, uh, Scott, and what happened there is Netflix called me up on that one and, uh, pretty much said, Hey, Javier, you're a character. And like I said, this is going back to the show. Said, we're going to put you out to be a little bit on the dirty side. Uh, and uh, they said, uh, also, can you sign? We're going to be faxing you a piece of paper. I said, what am I signing? And basically what I signed was that I was not going to be able to sue Netflix because of my character assassination. So like I tell people, you know what? I was making money. So I signed that bullshit you know, uh, piece of paper. But anyway, uh, dealing uh, like again, there's it, it's a dirty war out there. But then I go again, you know, just. Yeah, we never broke that law. So, yeah, you showed a little bit more constraint than perhaps is portrayed in the show, for sure. Yeah, correct. That, that show business. But uh, that's artistic licenses. But, yeah, I mean, in, in real life, like I, like I always say, guys, you know, there's always that line, man. You, you do not cross that line. Well, Steve, uh, I'd love to have your take on this, too, because certainly Pablo Escobar had all the resources in the world, or at least all of them in Colombia, to make life difficult for anybody who was trying to catch them. And certainly even when he was in his so-called state of house arrest, he was still pretty much running the show and it had to be frustrating and you just couldn't be Mr. Nice guy and catch this guy and bring him and his cartel down. And a lot of times gentlemen listening to this show may be really struggling with that Mr. Nice Guy persona. You know, I, I have to be super polite and I have to try to make everybody happy with me. And I have to make sure in order to get this woman to go out with me that I give her everything she wants on a silver platter. And, you know, if I don't, maybe she'll leave me and, and, and she won't like me anymore. Man, all that kind of had to go out the window with this guy, right? At least from the psychological <laughs> perspective. Well, uh, to a degree. So uh, you've heard of the thin blue line, yes. uh, which represents law enforcement. Well, that the, the reason it's called a thin blue line is because it's it's that thin line between good and evil. And if you compromise yourself, even though you're going against somebody, the world's, you know, Pablo Escobar was the world's first narco terrorist. He was the world's most wanted criminal. You know, to this day, there has never been a criminal identified that made more money than Pablo Escobar. So uh, you come right up to that, that line, but if you cross that line, then you're no better than the criminals. You know, you take an oath, and uh, it's like I say now, just because we retired doesn't mean that our oath expired. You know, so we're still trying to do our little bit, you know, just like this, like uh, speaking on podcasts, which, you know, we really appreciate you having us on here, whether it's our world speaking tour, our book, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, we're still trying to do what we think is the right thing, but you – have to maintain that that separation between you and whatever evil or anarchy is that you're facing, if that makes sense. Uh, it would have been very easy to step across that line. You know, Pablo put a $300,000 price tag on each of our heads because he knew we were there working with the Columbia National Police. Well, that brings a whole new element of stress and uh, anxiety into your life. But you're not going to believe this. Most men, I think, probably would, but a lot of other people don't. 
you get used to it. You become somewhat complacent. You never forget it. You know, you're always aware of what's going on around you, especially if you're out on an operation, if you're flying out on a Huey helicopter gunship or, you know, you're going out in the trucks and the Jeeps where a roadside bomb could, you know, blow you, blow your vehicle up and kill you at any moment. Uh, one of Pablo's favorite tactics was to have two Sicarios on a motorcycle and, you know, they would drive by in, in heavy traffic and they would use machine guns to shoot whoever was in the car. There's just things like that you always had to be aware of. But you still have to maintain that separation. So, and not to get ahead of here a little bit, but, you know, there was a group called Los Pepes that had a lot to do with bringing Pablo down at the end. Well, Los Pepes is nothing more than a murderous group of vigilantes. They were every bit as dangerous as, as Pablo. They were every bit as murderous. They violated the law every time they went out. We don't condone vigilantism. Were they successful? Yes. Did they have a lot to do with really bringing Pablo down and decimating his organization? Yes, they did. But, you know, at that time, we didn't know that there were police officers involved with that. After Escobar's death, we found out that one of the majors we worked with was heavily involved with that. And, in fact, one of our informants was the leader, which we didn't know about until after the fact. He was authorized by the Colombian attorney general to work with us. This is a guy that, at times, Javier and I trust our lives to this guy. You know, he's in prison here in the United States now doing 30 years for drug trafficking. But uh, you stop and look back and you think, you know what? We could have been killed at any moment. Thank the good Lord. He took care of us, you know, and, and that's why we're here talking to you today, Scott. So sometimes the lines are even blurred about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And you have foxes in the hen house. And, man, that just must have been incredibly stressful. But what I hear you saying, Steve and indeed you also, Javier, is that, okay, you kind of let the novelty of the danger and the stress wear off, but you don't ever let yourself get jaded by it. Correct. Yeah. That, and if I can add, and, and Steve said it, but yeah, I'm Don Berna. And if you see him in the Netflix series, the actor that portrays Don Berna, and Don Berna's a real character. He's a real uh, life. Uh, he was he was true. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of people think he was made up. No, this guy's a real guy. But the actor and the real guy look exactly alike. Wow. When I saw the actor playing him on TV, I thought that was the real Don Berna. And, you know, we mentioned in the book, you know, Don Berna got to be our friend, you know. And after Escobar gets killed, then when we find out that Don Berna was actually the head of Los Pepes. He was the one. And Los Pepes for the audience out there was that right-wing group that was made up of traffickers that Pablo Escobar had killed. So these guys got together and said, you know what? Pablo Escobar is trying to kill us and our families. We're going to play dirty. We're going to go after Pablo Escobar and his family members. Their objective was to kill Pablo Escobar's wife, his children, and his mother. They did not succeed in that, but they killed 30 of Escobar's friends, uh, you know, counting uh, teachers that were teaching the kids, attorneys that were working for Pablo Escobar, associates, anybody who they knew was working for Pablo Escobar, this group uh, uh, killed them. And then they would put a, a note on the bodies that was called Los Pepes. That way Pablo Escobar knew it was them, Los Pepes, who was killing them. Man, that's just chilling. And I'll add a programming note here. The actor they got to play Pablo himself was perfectly cast as well. Man. <laughs> he was we we think he's one of the very best actors on there. He and you know, in real life his name's Wagner Moore, he's Brazilian. In real life, he's one of the nicest, quietest, most humble people I've ever met in my life. You know, his wife is the same way, she's as sweet as she can be. But he really captured Pablo. And if you remember um, towards the end of season two of Narcos, where they show Pablo is hiding out with his dad out on a farm somewhere. Well, first of all, that's Hollywood. That if we had known he was out there, we would have gone and got him. That's Hollywood, right? But for sure, um, you watch. My wife and I are watching that, and Wagner Moore is such a good actor. I'm starting to feel sorry for Pablo Escobar. And then finally you realize, whoa, 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 what's wrong with you? That's Pablo Escobar. You don't have any hard, you know, soft feelings for this guy. He's a mass murderer. Here's a guy that, you know, Javier and I estimate that he's killed between 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people. But one of his own Sicarios said the number's more like 50,000 people. 
you know, this guy on top of being the world's biggest cocaine dealer, he's a mass murderer. And when I say big cocaine dealer, at one point he was responsible for as much as 80% of the world's cocaine. I mean, think about that, Scott, what you'd like to have 80% of the podcast market. You know, you'd say, <laughs> right. instead of saying Joe Rogan, you'd say Joe who, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's staggering. And I'll tell you what, from the first person perspective, as a fan of the Narcos show, they didn't really succeed very well at making him an anti-hero. We still pretty much saw him as the bad guy the whole time. Uh, you guys uh, definitely were the heroes of that show in the eyes of the audience. And yeah, you know, they showed you guys breaking the proverbial eggs to make the omelets and everything. But man, on the audience side, we totally got it, you know. I want to dig into this idea of men needing to bring out their dark side for good purposes. And Steve, one of the things your character said as narrator in the show is just like Javier was saying, sometimes you got to do bad things to catch bad people. Your character said, and sometimes bad people help you do good things. And I right. don't really know what that means, but does that tie into this somehow? Well, it does. It, uh, and it's a big reference to informants. Now, the the show itself would really like to have portrayed Javier and I as as going over to the dark side somewhat, you know, just like they showed Javier passing classified information to Los Pepes. That's not true. You know, and we never went to the dark side. But when you're dealing with informants, you don't find informants by going to a monastery, going inside a church. You know, it's not the choir people. It's not the pastor that are in your informants. It's bad guys. Some are just as bad as, as Pablo himself in the fact that they kill people needlessly, wantonly, you know, at a whim's notice. So you do have to deal with, a at times, an unsavory element, I guess would be a very polite way to say it. Uh, you're dealing with criminals. That's where your expertise really comes in, is if you can flip that criminal to the point where you don't really ever trust each other. We never trust them. But maybe they'll trust you a little bit to try and help you achieve your mission. So that's that's about as close as we would get. You know, it shows on the show that I was in a helicopter when they were throwing suspects out the door at 3,000 feet. That's not true. Uh, there's just There's just so many things were added by Hollywood to make it an exciting series. And, and you know what? It is a very exciting series. Uh, I think they did a, a heck of a job with it. You know what, uh, Scott, let me also add, when you were talking about Wagner Mora, uh, Wagner Mora did not know Spanish. Wagner Mora is a Brazilian. And uh, so, you know, he gets to Medellin about two months before they start filming and just immerses himself in a, uh, in a class on uh, learning uh, Spanish. And the Medellin Spanish, that they call it the Paisa accent, and I'm sure you heard it when you were down there, Scott. It's very different. It's very unique. But Wagner Moore did such a great job. He got that uh, that dialect, uh, that accent down like, like he was a regular person from Medellin. So kudos to him. Yeah, he nailed it for sure. With yeah. the double L's being SH's. It's kind of like when you say Medellin, Scott, you, you say it the way they say it, Medellin. Medellin, yeah. No right. D either, just Medellin. Right, right. Kind of, where the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, well, for Medellin people, it's, uh, they call them paisas, you know, so yes. it's, uh, they call it that paisa uh, accent, but did a, a great job. Yeah, kind of yeah. made us wonder how you knew to say that, Scott. Is there something that you need to come clean about or what? Oh, I went and visited and immersed ourselves while we were there. We were fascinated uh, and by it. Did you bring back any special gifts from Columbia? <laughs> no, uh, we did not, other than lots of memories. Uh, it's right. interesting, though. I will tell you this since you asked. When we got off the plane in Houston, it was United Airlines, and there was a secondary level of security. There was a table at the gate, and they questioned you. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they, they sort out everybody, you know, with American passport from everybody with a non-U.S. passport uh, when you go through customs. And it was a 737-900, so it had probably about 170 people on board. Mm -hmm. One other guy and my wife and I were the only Americans on board. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this is 2010 when we went, and Americans were still scared stiffless to go to Medellin. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. But nowadays, now it's very different. But uh, yeah, well, even then, even then. Yeah. So I got to ask you: Did you have the bandeja paisa there in Medellin? That doesn't ring a bell. 
It's the fried egg over the meat, chicharron, a pork. Uh, oh, we had everything. We had yeah, all the food, yeah, man. Oh, we yeah, went yeah. to like five or six different restaurants and just absolutely fell in love with the food. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's great. Right. We had an expat friend of ours who was living there. Oh, and he okay. knew exactly where to take us. Right. Fantastic. I mean, just everything about the country is just wonderful. Underrated, it is. For sure. It yeah. really is. Yeah. It's a pretty hairy ride from the airport to town. <laughs> but we digress a little. You know, you think of some of the moments in history where good men had to make hard decisions. Truman bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, obviously, that's a much more grandiose situation than even what you guys were dealing with. But nobody's looking back at Truman saying, man, that guy was just an evil bastard for killing all those people. It's what had to happen to end this war. And you guys were in a war that the curtain had to be drawn on, you know. And basically what I hear you guys saying is you had to remember you were the good guys. You had to put aside the fear and replace it with raw courage. You know, and I'm going to say that you guys don't have to pat yourselves on the back, but obviously that had to be there. There had to be an element considering what you were up against and what was happening all around you. And the idea of being someone who's embracing the dark side to get rid of a darker side is really more about doing what you've got to do as a man, even though it isn't pretty so that you live up to your purpose and indeed your legacy, which is to make the world a better place and rid the world of evil by doing what men do. And sometimes that gets messy and it gets fearsome, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. And it's it goes back to, you know, people might take this not as serious as we do or a little bit, uh, I guess that's the nice way to say it, just not serious. But when you take an oath, that's something that you agree to live up to. You know, and, and we took an oath to honor the Constitution of the United States and to protect people. And and I'm not saying that in, in a braggadocious way. It's thank you for saying about the bravery. We just, you know, a lot of people call us heroes. We just really don't subscribe to that. We were just doing our job, to be honest with you. But uh, I did want to get this out there. And, and I, I know Javier will agree 110 percent that the true heroes out of this whole thing were not Javier opinion, Steve Murphy. It wasn't the U.S. Army's Delta Force, the U.S. Navy's SEAL Team 6 that was down there with us, or the CIA, or any of the other gringos. The true heroes in that whole operation was the Colombian National Police because they took their country back from this guy. I mean, we're talking about the mass murder that we mentioned earlier. You're talking about a guy who has no conscience, who has no respect for the rule of law, who to get his point across, as I mentioned earlier, will not only kill you, they'll kill your wife, your parents, your children, and even your dog first, and then kill you. You know, there, there's nothing good about him. There's uh, there's people out there that try to say he was a dedicated family man. That's absolutely not true. There's people that, like Javier said, think he's some kind of Robin Hood. That's not true. Uh, he's nothing more than a mass murderer criminal, the world's most wanted criminal. You know, Scott, I, I listened to one telephone conversation. It was uh, Pablo Escobar and his wife. It was when we were looking for him. We were intercepting uh, his phone, and uh, he's telling his wife how much he loves her, how much he misses her. Then in the background, wow, it is a yell. It's a shriek. It's something I'll never forget. It's a guy yelling. So Pablo tries to cover the phone. And uh, tells his sicarios, cover his mouth, and then continues talking to his wife, telling her how much he loves her. That's Pablo Escobar. So twisted. <laughs> it's just really? so evil. Yeah. Now his family is alive and well. They are. Right. Yes. We've heard, you know, they, they eventually fled to Argentina, Buenos Aires. They changed their names. Uh, I just recently finished reading the book that his wife wrote. It's called Pablo and Me, and uh, I was not impressed. Uh, I understand that the son has written a book. I know he's produced a movie. He's on the speaking circuit like we are. I have not read his books, but uh, people send me excerpts and ask me my opinion. And, you know, honestly, you get so many of those, you can't answer everybody. But, uh, you know, he's trying to promote this theory that his on that rooftop on December 2nd, 1993, after he had started a gun battle with the Colombian National Police, that he shot himself with the last round that he had in his pistol. He committed suicide because his son says that his dad had always said, they'll never take me alive. You know, I've got 15 rounds in this magazine, 14 for them, the last one for me. 
Well, if you've seen those pictures online of Pablo's body, I took those pictures. We didn't post them. You know, people have taken our photographs and posted them all over. But if you commit suicide with a handgun and it's, you know, the, the fatal shot was in his right ear, went through his brain. When you commit suicide with a handgun, there are bits of gunpowder that come out and they'll leave powder burns on the skin. You can look at the photographs yourself. Don't take my word for it. If you see any powder burns, let me know, because all these years later, no one has ever found any powder burns. That's how we know it was not suicide. So, you know, the the son is, uh, well, you know what? If my father was Pablo Escobar, maybe I'd want to try to change his legacy also. But creating a lie does not change the truth. Yeah, you guys got him. I'm pretty sure of it. <laughs> but I do want to also punctuate this conversation by saying every true hero I've ever met really shies away from embracing their own heroism. And so, you know, that was fully expected. But, you know, you guys, your service is uh, incredibly valued and we're uh, grateful for it, not only in this country, but I'm sure in Colombia also. Before we send guys to your website, I have three quick questions for you, kind of as a lightning round before we close. First of all, to what extent do the cartels influence or even control American life these days in your estimation? My, my estimation, uh, you know, what what happened to Medellin cartel? We took them, uh, we took them down. What happened? Cali cartel took it over. We took them down. Other cartel. Look at the Mexico cartels operating. They're still dope coming in. They're still killing. They're still using violence tactics. There's uh, uh it hasn't stopped. Uh, so, you know, as long as there's money to be made, those cartels do not care who dies, who gets killed, as long as they're making a profit. What's your take on the current border situation? Is it a crisis? Uh, I'll take that since I know where Javier lives and it's rather sensitive with him. I think it is a crisis. Uh, you know, people ask us, well, should Trump have been allowed to build that wall? I don't know. You know, what we've seen is that for every measure the United States employees to thwart the drug trafficking coming into our country, they find a solution to go around it. So, you know, we could build a 10-mile high fence and they'll still find a way to go around it. But on the other hand, you look at our politicians, do they have fences around their properties to keep people off their properties? Yes, they do. My opinion on the, uh, on the immigration issues, my daughters are both Colombian. They went through the normal process to earn their American citizenship. If we can do it, anybody could do it. It's our rule of law. Last question is a little more whimsical and not directly tied to your experience, but perhaps tangentially so. And I've been dying to ask you guys this. You saw firsthand the power of a crook with a whole lot of money. Okay. Jeffrey Epstein was a crook with a whole lot of money. And the circumstances of his alleged death were suspect. Do you think it's possible he paid everybody off and sprung himself with that kind of money? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a, I'll just say, you know what? Money, what is it? Money corrupts. Tons of money. Uh, I just Corrupts, absolutely. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's traffic. Look at the, the traffickers. You know what? And one of the, you know, Escobar's model was he did not want to come to a jail cell in the United States. And that was what his war was about. Now I want to come to the United States. Why? Because he couldn't buy himself out of a, you know, out of prison like he did in Colombia. That's my two cents worth. <laughs> I think fair enough. I don't think that happened with Jeffrey Epstein. I think he committed suicide. Um, a lot of conspiracy theorists in our country. Yes, for sure. <laughs> anyway, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic conversation and uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. And I think the guys got a lot out of it. And guys who are listening, I indeed want to send you to Steve and Javier's website, which is called DEA Narcos. And indeed it's DEANarcos.com. But what I'm going to do as I typically do is set up a special URL for you. So you can go to www.mountaintoppodcast.com front slash Narcos. N-A-R-C-O-S. Just remember that one specific word and you'll be able to visit Steve and Javier's site. And you guys are not only selling your fantastic book, Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar there, but you'll also autograph a copy for them and send it, which is a very nice gesture. So um, yeah, guys, go to mountaintoppodcast.com front slash narcos and uh, get you some. 
And these guys also have a worldwide speaking tour. So I'm assuming they can check the calendar at your website, right, guys? That's correct. Yeah. And they also have started a podcast with a very auspicious title, Game of Crimes. See what they did there? That's pretty cool. And uh, you already can tell these guys are extremely interesting. And man, based on the thickness of this book, I mean, it's a one inch thick book and paperback. Uh, there are so many stories to tell each and every one of them fascinating. So guys, be sure to visit Steve and Javier at their website. And gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been just a fantastic episode. Can't thank you enough. Scott, thank you for having us on the show. It's been a real pleasure. And, and you know, it's kind of nice when when we get asked a new question because that doesn't happen very often. Yeah, Scott, thank you. Great interview. And uh, hopefully we'll get to see each other because I am also here in San Antonio. I would love that. I will personally buy you a beer, sir. <laughs> and I have been known to drink a couple. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe we can work that out. I hope so. Guys, if you haven't been to mountaintoppodcast.com just yet, please visit. Uh, we have heard from two American heroes today, whether they like that word or not. And you can visit at least two more when you go to mountaintoppodcast.com. The first one, of course, is Hero Soap which you can take 10% off of any order by adding Mountain 10 as a coupon code to that said order. And uh, you will find Hero Soap to be the very best soap you've ever tried to clean yourself with. And you will indeed clean yourself up very well, very successfully once you use their products. And also Jocko Willink's company Origin in Maine sponsors this show. Fantastic supplements, the best I've ever taken. I've never felt better. I've been using those supplements for about a year. The best jeans I've ever worn. And as you know, Jocko Willink was a SEAL team leader, and he's one of those other guys who kind of doesn't embrace being called a hero very well. Kind of a running theme with these guys. But anyway, you can check out both Origin in Maine and Hero Soap when you go to mountaintoppodcast.com. Enter the code MOUNTAIN10 for 10% off your order with either of those two fine sponsors. And if you guys haven't yet talked to me about your future, getting the best woman you can possibly imagine into your life and being the better man you want to be, definitely talk to me for 25 minutes for free, which you can also arrange from mountaintoppodcast.com. And until I talk to you again real soon, this is Scott McKay from X and Y Communications in San Antonio, Texas. Be good out there. The Mountaintop Podcast is produced by X and Y Communications. All rights reserved worldwide. Be sure to visit www.mountaintoppodcast.com for show notes. And while you're there, sign up for the free X and Y Communications newsletter for men. This is Ed Roy Odom speaking for The Mountaintop Podcast.